Marini's Media. Totally Football Show today. More essential content as we talk good news, flip reverse to a world where Spurs sell bail, not to the Bernabeu, but Brum. Elsewhere, we have a negative test for FIFA as we review United Passions, the Derby County 0708 of football movies. And there's drama as we witness match two of the World Cup of Totally. Lindsay Hooper versus Pat Nevin. Who will be smart and who will be left smarting? It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Yes, listener, panic on the streets of Birmingham. The Smiths there, who may have left their car parked on Jack Grealish's street. Uh, will life ever be the same again, indeed? Will Moss, for that matter? The question's for another day, probably, because in the pod right now for us, we have Emma Saunders. Hi, Emma. Hello, James. Lovely to speak to you again. And you. Great. Tom Williams is with us. Hi, Tom. Hi, James. Tom's threatening to sing. Go back to you on that one, Tom. Uh, because also here today, we have Duncan Alexander, Hello, uh, fresh James. from Monday's quiz debacle. Well, well, Duncan. Do we have to talk about this? Yeah, the pod addict says, can Duncan explain mm. his early exit from the Totally World Cup? Was it the burden of the favourites tag? Well, I don't want to go too deep into it because I went deep into it on uh, on Sunday when we recorded. I had quite an you know, introspective couple of hours. Um, I basically I got the first question wrong in the second half and I, my mind went completely blank and it's never happened before and I was just floundering. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe I need... If I was an Italian football club, I'd have to go into Retiro now, ordered by the owner because, you know... The funny thing is, you kind of are, Duncan. Oh, yeah, good point. Mm. But what a start to the tournament. Argentina, Cameroon vibes, Spain, Switzerland. I mean, just the, France, Senegal. the yeah, I mean, you know. form book out of the window right from kickoff. Glad to make it a classic so early, really. <laughs> right. Well, uh, as mentioned, we will be joined for a match two by uh, Pat Nevin and uh, Lindsay Hooper very shortly. So we're expecting some more drama there. Emma, you've been busy on Radio London. Uh, you're in charge of doing good news stories, is that right? Yes, I've been uh, seconded, I suppose, to news from sports for the time being, um, working on a scheme called BBC Make a Difference. So just going on air uh, every half an hour or so, sharing feel-good stories All right. uh, in the middle of the crisis that we're in. So it, it ranges from anything from um, London restaurants, donating meals to hospitals grannies doing aerobics in their gardens that kind of thing all the hard-hitting breaking news you know my journalism training really coming into fruition what's the story that's given you the warmest feeling inside so far well, there's lots of nice football stories. Um, it all started really with Chelsea making that first move, offering up um, the hotel at Stamford Bridge to NHS workers. Arsenal donated a load of cash and cars to help their local communities uh, in North London. Watford, I have to mention, have given up their stadium, which is conveniently right next to Watford General Hospital. Uh, and Tottenham, doing the same, understands that their fabulous new stadium um, is being offered up to NHS and to help support a local food bank. Right, they're fabulous new stadium. Workers within which have all just been put on furlough in, in, in less happy news, essentially suspended with, without pay and until such point as the, the season uh, starts again, which is obviously there'll be reasons. No one's having an easy time of it economically, but it's troubling, Tom. Yeah, it feels that the Premier League has been slow to take action. Um, Premier League clubs have been slow to take action in terms of uh, players accepting wage cuts. We've seen that all around Europe. I think some of the big German clubs were the, were the first to sign up to it. Uh, it's been followed in, in Spain. Obviously, we all remember Lionel Messi's outburst um, after he felt that uh, Barcelona's players were being unfairly accused of um, you know, ducking their responsibilities by, by the club's directors. We've seen it in France. Um, there's, there's clubs who are on um, or, or players who are on what they call chômage partiel, like partial unemployment. Um, and the Premier League is the only place where it hasn't happened. And then to compound that, you have Spurs announcing that all these uh, staff members are being furloughed while their players are still getting the same wage. It does stick in the craw somewhat. Well, while they're not furloughing uh, unsuspecting employees, Premier League clubs have been meeting again virtually and discussing 
uh, a latest idea, which is uh, the Premier League mega camp to close the season, a kind of all-in tournament behind closed doors at some undecided point in the summer. Is this good news? Is it likely to happen? Should we be talking about it, Duncan? Uh, well, I think if it happens, it's going to be different. It's going to be like a World Cup, but just involving you know Brighton and uh, and other teams like that. So it's going to be strange to see all that happen in one. I mean, are they going to play like multiple games on one day, which would be quite cool, but also a bit weird. So, I mean, obviously we just need to get the season finished, um, and this sounds like the most sensible option. It will require obviously the players to be hyper quarantined because anyone falls ill halfway through and the whole thing falls to bits. So um, that'll be interesting. Yeah, indeed so. Uh, with the sport in lockdown at the moment and the world in general as well, if you've been wondering what uh, Harry Kane's thoughts on his future might be, you're in luck though because he has been able to uh, voice those via the medium of uh, Jamie Redknapp's Instagram live chats. Uh, a lot of attention paid here to the fact that Harry's saying... I've always said if I don't feel we're progressing as a team or going in the right direction, I'm not someone to stay there for the sake of it. He also told Jamie he thought the season should be null and voided. You excited by this, Emma? Um, I think, unfortunately, for Tottenham fans, Harry Kane's words were that it wasn't a yes, it wasn't a no, whether he was going to stay at Tottenham for the rest of his career. But your answer is there. It wasn't a yes. He didn't firmly say yes. Um, he has said, hasn't he? I think it's down to how they progress as a team. So I guess until we know what's going to happen with the season, we're not going to get an answer out of this. But the other thing we do need to consider with that, um, if we do get the season done, another issue that you might have to consider with his agent that he wouldn't have had before is that there is a second wave of coronavirus He's going to be stuck there for ages. The one thing about Harry Kane is that he always manages to find a way to get himself into the golden boot race. And this season, he looked like he was finally out of it. Um, you know, injured for the rest of the campaign. Yeah, he's kind of, I'm not saying he's engineered a global pandemic, but, you know, if the season does get finished, he's got a great chance of, uh, you know, getting a few goals. Well, we've got all these quirks around injured players. Someone mentioned, I think it was Ricardo Pereira, who did his ACL in his last game for Leicester. And someone said he's going to be the first player in history <laughs> to do his ACL and then return to fitness for his club's next game. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that, that is one potential uh, positive consequence of um, you know, this dreadful situation. Again, speaking purely from uh, a football perspective, is that players who, who thought their seasons were over um, you know, will be back if and when the season resumes. Um, so you know, we could have teams at full strength firing on all cylinders. So if and when the football does return, it could be, could be quite the spectacle. There have been suggestions that Kane could be on his way to Madrid to fill a key role in Real's uh, injury bulletins in the near future. Uh, we actually are going to be doing a special flip reverse very shortly, kind of inspired by that, uh, basically talking about the last big player departure that Spurs had to handle, Carrot Bale. Of course, is there some lesson that Kane and his advisors can learn from our vision of an alternate world? No, no, there isn't. But anyway, that's coming up very shortly. Uh, before that, though, we'll have your questions and Lindsay and Pat will get it on in Game 2 of the World Cup of Totally. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Listener, all those questions you have about which one of our Totally Pundits knows the most about football, well, we're going to be discovering soon enough thanks to the World Cup of Totally. It is a battle royale between all our pundits. On Monday, Alvaro Romeo did send Duncan Alexander back to his stats and spreadsheets with a huge first-round performance. The question is, now that he's in the quarterfinals, who's going to be joining him today as we unveil another two contestants? Let's meet them. Up first, he is a DJ, a Scotsman and a jinking winger. He's played more professional football games than you. He's also seen more Romanian art house films than you. He is Pat Nifty Nevin. Pat, thanks for joining us. Do you know, it's A, it's a pleasure always, but particularly the fall playing in the background. To walk yeah. into the fall, do you know, I've, I've hit the top already. I can't get right. any better than that. <laughs> Will you be taking a fall? That's the big question, though, as we meet your opponent. And his opponent. She is one third of the Offside Rule podcast. She is the brains from the black country and she is hungry like a Wolverhampton fan. Super duper Lindsay Hooper. 
<laughs> My Robert Plant selection could be the best part of this quiz. I gotta say, su superb musical choices from from both of you, Lindsay. Are you a little bit nervous? Yes, I'm up against one of my favourite pundits, who knows everything, by the way. All right. Well, we've got the specialist subjects coming up now. Can I just quickly ask what they're going to be? Pat, what's your specialist subject? Um, my specialist subject is uh, Glasgow Celtics season 1966-67. I was four years old, so I obviously can't remember it. But the first game of football I ever went to was in that season, and I've done. 10 full minutes of studying up in this, so I'm hoping to get at least one out of five here. Magnificent. <laughs> Lindsay, your special subject? Yeah, please don't ask me those that Pat's asked for. Um, I'm going to go for Wolves in the 2018-19 season, returning back to the top flight and what a season it was. When you were also four years old, of course. <laughs> All right, well, let's start then. Lindsay, you're up first with Wolves 2018-2019. Question one. Why would Willie Bolly's goal in the 1-1 draw against a Manchester City not have counted in this 2019-2020 season? Handball. That's correct. Uh, the ball went in off his hand, so VAR would have chalked it off. Question two. Who scored a 93rd-minute winner in the 4-3 victory over Leicester in January of that season? I think that... Was that Willy Bolly as well? It was not. Diogo no. Jota. Seven Portuguese players made Premier League start for Wolves in that season. Can you name five of them? Um, Jota. Yes. Johnny Otto. I don't have him here. Is he Portuguese? Is he Portuguese or Spanish? <laughs> don't think he's Portuguese. Okay, Rui Patricio. Right. Um, I will go with Ruben Vinagra. Yes. And who will I go else? I will... I'll go Moutinho. Jean Moutinho, yeah, you're at four. You need one more. Oh, I need one more. I think uh, we're still going to go to VAR on this on account of the Johnny Otto. Okay, uh, Cavalero. Is five, and we're going to let you off uh, naming the random Johnny Otto in there. Question four. One player made a league appearance in both the 2018-2019 season in the Premier League and the 2013-2014 season when Wolves were promoted from League One. Which player was it? Matt Doherty. Correct. Question five. Wolves were denied a place in the FA Cup final after Troy Deeney scored a 94th-minute penalty in the semi-final at Wembley. Who fouled Deeney to concede that penalty? Connor Cody. It was not. Leander Dendonka. Uh. Which means, Lindsay, that after your specialist round, you have picked up three points out of five. What do you think? Rubbish. We'll see how rubbish that proves as we go now to Pat Nevin for his specialist round, Celtic, 1966-67. Question one, Pat. In the following list of Celtic's opponents en route to winning the European Cup, which club is missing? FC Zurich, FK Vojvodina, Dukla Prague and Inter. Which I'd club is for, missing? I'd go for Nolte. Correct. Question two. Who did Celtic beat in the Scottish Cup final? Oh, the Scottish Cup final, uh, Aberdeen. Aberdeen Correct. 2-0 at Hamden Park, I believe, off the top of my head. No extra points for that. Question three. Who scored 35 goals in all competitions despite not playing a game after Boxing Day? That would be Joe McBride, the centre-forward, whose son I actually know quite well. Yeah, Joe McBride, I think. Three points so far for Pat as we move on to question four. Celtic's players were famously all born within 10 miles of Celtic Park, but which player was the only one who played that season and appeared for a national team other than Scotland? Oh, I would say he played for Ireland and his name has Gallagher. Was it Gallagher? It was Gallagher, Charlie Gallagher. Uh, yeah, Charlie Gallagher played for Ireland, yes. And question five for a full house from Pat Levin. At which stadium did Celtic get the point that confirmed them as league champions? Oh, that's a tough one. I have no idea. I'm going to go for a complete and utter guess. I'm going to go for... Oh, it's got to be Ibrox. <laughs> Was it Ibrox? Pat Nevin, you've scored five out of five on your specialist <laughs> fluke, round. A complete fluke. Wow. Pat, that's magnificent. Um, yeah, as a kind of specialist subject, you know, people from Scotland, particularly I was a Celtic supporter of most of my young life and uh, grew up watching that team. And it's the stuff of history, all that mm. for us. And I know very little about anything else, but I know about that team. You remembered it very well. I couldn't remember last year. 
Right. <laughs> but that's yeah. why they call them specialist subjects. Still, Lindsay, you've got a two-point deficit to make up when we return later on in the show with the general knowledge round. We'll see you later. Looking forward to seeing that pair back later on. Duncan, the uh, first mm. round blues striking again for Lindsay there. Well, I, I can empathise. Uh, well, I think my first round was, was all right. But, um, I mean, just it's appalling to see not only is Pat Nevin good enough at football to become a very good professional footballer and play internationally, but is, you know, amazing at Triver as well. So, fair play, Pat. Right. Although I think he'd dispute the description of Celtic 66-67 as trivia. Anyway, we're here, Pat later on. By the way, if you're curious to know who you'll be uh, competing against as the quiz progresses, Emma, you've got Jack Lang. How do you feel? Oh, God. Oh, no. No, I mean, I, I don't know if there's such thing as a good draw in this anyway, but that's, that's certainly not favourable. Well, Tom, you'll be up on Monday morning against James Horncastle. Yeah, it's a tough draw, uh, but as I said last time, you know, if you want to win these things, you've got to, you've got to beat everyone, so... Why not go after one of the big guns right at the start? Right from the start. I like it. OK, uh, time now for a few questions for us, uh, sent in by listeners. Kenneth Ertner says, Would Oily Sailor be able to go back and collect stats from old games like they do with current ones? I would love, says Kenneth, to have pages of stats from the 1986 World Cup, especially the Denmark games. Duncan. Yeah, well, it's already been done. We've gone back to 1966 uh, with World Cup, so every single match from 66 onwards, and every Euros back to 1980 as well. So all that data already exists, and uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll be revisiting it quite a lot over the next few weeks. I'm sure. Uh, Adam Heathcote uh, questions, uh, which footballer has or has had the most ironic surname? Two that spring to mind are Chido Immobile, who's actually quite Mobile. And Danny Drinkwater, for obvious reasons, said Adam, who apparently doubts that Danny Drinkwater drinks water. Um, but what, what have you got, Tom, Emma, Duncan? Well, I, I came across uh, a young goalkeeper who's currently on the books at Udinese, whose name is Simone Scuffe. Uh, mm. But when you read it uh, through sort of uh, Anglophone eyes, uh, if that makes sense, it looks a bit like Simone Scuffit. Nice. Um, quite enjoyed that one. Italian football was quite fertile ground for this kind of thing, actually. Adam mentioned uh, Ciro Immobile. Uh, my favourite example has always been uh, the notoriously dark Italian defender, uh, Claudio Gentile, who was anything but, you know, Gentile. Mm. I mean, it's not really uh, ironic, but I love Kevin Lasagna, just because, right. A, your surname's Lasagna, and why are you called Kevin? But, well, he's not, <laughs> he's not a Lasagna, so in that sense, <laughs> it is ironic. Emma... Mm. Uh, I have a couple of contributions, actually, from Vicarage Road. So I'll start with the former Watford midfielder turned non-league journeyman, Jamie Hand, who was not a goalkeeper. Right. And uh, in-form Watford winger, Ismail Saar, whose progress has been halted due to the coronavirus. Oh, which is like a, a Saar. Saar, Saar, Saar. It is Saar's yeah. something, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Duncan? But can I... Can I contribute my all-time favourite for this is a New Zealand player called Lee Norfolk who only ever played Premier League games in Suffolk. He played three times Ripswich, all of them at Portman Road. So, I mean, what was he doing? Seriously. Expunge him from the database. That's extraordinary. <laughs> in, in contrast, the most appropriate football player's name of all time, would that be Mark Deman, the defender? It's hard to beat that. Right. Or John DeWolf when he played for... Uh, for Wolves. Right. Or Wolfgang we, Wolf managing Wolves. But I mean, you, that, I could go true. we could be here all, all day. Let's, let's move on then. Other questions. Adam Gordon uh, says, who's the most famous person you've ever seen at a match? Emma. I mean, when your honorary chairman is El Elton John, that's quite hard to beat. Um, we have had Spice Girl Jerry Halliwell, though, at a recent game last season. Okay. Still Elton for me there. Uh, Tom, can you beat? Um, I, I shared a lift with Risto Stoichkov prior to the 2014 World Cup final at American Art and I was with uh, some colleagues. It was, quite a, it was quite a crowded lift and one of my colleagues saw that we were in the lift with Stoichkov and sort of nudged one of my other colleagues and was like, it's Stoichkov. And Stoichkov saw him do that and then just stared at him quite menacingly and didn't say anything for the duration of the lift journey. It probably only lasted about, you know, 
nine or ten seconds, but it felt like an eternity. Yeah, I think that's what you want him to do. I think that's on brand for. It was so on brand. Yeah, if he'd been really friendly and really nice, I would have been so disappointed. So yeah, I think especially if they're non-football people, I think that counts double. Like so, a non-footballing celebrity, Duncan. Well, I think if you work in the football world, that you kind of come across quite a lot. So I think you have to go back further when you were more impressed by these things. And I think my classic of these and he's probably not the most famous man in the world but I was very excited at the as a teenager to go to Wembley to see England play against Nigeria I think and so I spotted in the row behind me it was games master presenter Dominic Diamond oh wow um, with a k yeah with a k and I turned to him and I I got him to sign I was wearing some awful Wickham away kit and I got him to sign my shirt and he was like why are you making me do this and then and he got really angry because then loads of England fans noticed him and obviously he's Scottish and, and started abusing him and it all, it all went quite wrong quite quickly. But, you know, I, th- I still think of it fondly. All right. I, uh, I once saw Brian Adams at San Siro, which is interesting because I went to college with his, his cousin. We chatted and he actually came on. We were doing the, the old, you know, that show. He, he came on as well. He came and did our halftime chat, which is awfully nice of him. Uh, by contrast, what about football is in mundane places? I asked this because... Producer Ben, erstwhile producer Ben, before his, you know, disgrace and that, uh, he, he once stood behind uh, Mustafi at Tesco's mm. on the very evening that Arsenal had just lost 5-1 to Liverpool. Good Lord. And then Mustafi was in the queue at Tesco's and Ben was behind him. <laughs> what Every a day. Well, speaking of supermarkets, I can match that with um, Watford legend Marlon King. I bumped into in Wilkinson's. I must have been, let me work this out, uh, early teens anyway. And I just remember walking around a corner and seeing him. And it was pre-mobile phones, pre-selfie era. So I just said, oh, you're Marlon King. And he said, hi. And then that was the end of our encounter. (laughs) Haunting. Yeah. I once saw Milan Barros um, on a petrol station forecourt in the Midlands. Um, And I also once saw Gareth Barry queuing up on his own to get into a nightclub in Bristol. No way. Mm. So like pre-England Gareth Barry, so back in the sort of back in the early years. Obviously same haircut because that didn't change, but weren't you Tom once Dean Saunders caddy? Yes. Yeah, do you want to hear the story? It's quite amusing. It reflects quite badly on me. Basically, uh my dad was doing some work with Dean Saunders at the time. Um, and uh, they ended up playing a golf pro-am together at Conway Golf Club in North Wales. And my dad, knowing that I was trying to get into football journalism, suggested that I come along and caddy for Dean Saunders, um, you know, a chance to make a contact, etc. I think I got him to sign a shirt at some point as well. Anyway, so we get on the first tee, um, and Saunders is like, right, what do you think? And I was like, sorry, what? And he wanted to know which club he should use, and I knew nothing about golf, so I was like, oh, I don't know, the, 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 the big... The, that, that, that big one there maybe and as we go around it becomes apparent that he was expecting a proper caddy and everyone else in our little game had a proper caddy uh, except for him and we very quickly got to a point where he was asking the other caddies for club selection advice and I was just silently handing the club to him and as like the day went on it, you know it, my hopes of striking up a rapport with Dean Saunders had faded completely I'm just sort of, you know, trundling along behind the rest of the group, dragging uh, Dean Saunders' golf bag on this trolley. Um, And then at one point I suddenly heard this splash and I turned around and Dean Saunders' pristine white leather golf bag had fallen off this trolley and landed in a massive muddy puddle. I was like, oh man, (laughs) this is getting even worse. So I had to run over, fish it out of the puddle and I was like trying to wipe it down, I think, with my sleeve. And Saunders realised that I'd disappeared, came sort of like trotting over. There was a bit of a standoff where he asked me whether I dropped his golf bag in a puddle and I had to deny having dropped his golf bag in a puddle while I washed the muddy evidence of the puddle dropping episode off the golf bag. Um, And yeah, so yeah, my dad's hopes that me and Dean Saunders would become firm buddies did not pay off. I actually, I, I was trying to get hold of him for an article that I wrote a little while ago and I messaged him and I was like oh you know you might remember me I dropped your golf bag in uh, in that puddle and he, he didn't reply so uh, <laughs> yeah, didn't wow, leave the best Tom, impression sorry to make you relive that that's um but you know you went on to have an extraordinary career so there's a lesson in that lovely stuff well time now to go in search of another world listener with another of the game's big what ifs as we flip reverse I'm Jose Mourinho 
I know a thing or two about being special. Being on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine? Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbgambleware.org. Listeners, if you've always wanted to hablar espanol, sprecher auf Deutsche, or parler couramment le français, or indeed parler l'italiano, but you didn't think you had the time to attend a language class, well, now might be the perfect time. Why not get on board with Babbel? Babbel brings language classes into the 21st century with online courses and daily 10 to 15 minute lessons designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks. You learn through interactive dialogues and real-life conversations, while Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and your accent. Ooh la la! No matter if you're using a desktop, mobile or tablet, Babbel syncs your progress across all devices. Try it for yourself today by heading to babbel.co.uk and downloading the app for free on Android or iPhone. That's B-A-B-B-E-L, so like Marcus, not Ryan, .co.uk. Babbel. Learn a new language and make it your own. On Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. That's right, official band of Time Tinkering Blazing Squad there. Uh, meaning it's time to mess with time once again. This week, with that talk of Harry Kane pondering his departure, our minds went back to when another world-class player was heading for the door at Tottenham, Gareth Bale. After his rocky beginnings at left-back, remember, his subsequent success earned him glory in gazillions and lots of golf in Madrid. But what if Spurs had sold him before that, when he was still that human albatross figure with whom they couldn't win? Duncan. Yes, so... We have to go back in time to the autumn of 2009. Um, Bale's not doing much at Spurs. Alex McLeish at Birmingham is sniffing around, uh, contacts Harry Redknapp. What actually happened was Redknapp says, sorry, we've got too many injuries. We can't let him come to you. But in this example, he does. In that, in that transfer window, he moves to Birmingham. So that season... So he was going to move to Birmingham if he hadn't been injured back in 2009. No, no, Spurs had had too many injuries at the time, I think. So Redknapp said, we've got to keep him. But, I mean, Redknapp at the time said Gareth needs to learn to defend better, which was particularly wrong. He needed to, you know, learn to play him further forward, I think, was a better option. But um, anyway, so January 2010... Bale moves to Birmingham City. No one really notices. One of those transfers that just, you know, appears on the ticker. Oh, yeah, that guy. Um, Birmingham in real life that season actually came ninth, which was a pretty good campaign for them. So Bale actually improves them. Maybe they come seventh. You know, everyone's reasonably happy. We go into 2010-11. Now, you might remember this is the season Birmingham actually got relegated, but they won the League Cup. They beat Arsenal. Uh, they still win the League Cup, but they win it 5-1 against Arsenal. Gareth Bale stars, absolute, you know, tears Arsenal to pieces with a hat-trick. Birmingham also don't go down, they finish mid-table. Bale is suddenly becoming this kind of amazing player that everyone rates. Arsene Wenger has to resign from Arsenal and just vanishes for a bit. Um, summer 2011, you might remember, Kenny Dalglish is at Liverpool. He's having to rebuild Liverpool after the Hodgson experiment has gone horribly wrong. In this world, he doesn't sign Charlie Adam and Stuart Downing. Why does he need to? He just goes to Birmingham City, makes a massive offer for Gareth Bale, and they're like, well, we can't stand in Gareth Bale's way. So Bale now moves to Anfield. We move on to 2011-12. Bale and Luis Suarez uh, form a devastating partnership, uh, reminiscent of Barnes and Beardsley in 87-88 in, in Dalglish's first spell in charge. Along with Craig Bellamy, they form this thing at the media called the BSB, which is a lovely nod to the uh, nation's satellite TV heritage. Um, Liverpool comfortably finish in the top four this season. You might remember uh, in this actual real-life campaign, Liverpool won the League Cup uh, and lost in the Cup final. Not with Bale. They win both trophies, and he's now known as this sort of Cup final king, almost unplayable. We move on to 2012-13. By this point, Bale's playing at a level that no-one can cope with, and you know Liverpool are just irrepressible with Bale up front. What happens, right? 
they actually win the league title under Kenny Dalglish in 2012-13. It's Alex Ferguson's last season at Manchester United. He has to leave United in disgrace. Uh, Liverpool back on their perch. Uh, Dalglish even signs James Perch as a kind of really oblique reference, which it really annoys Ferguson. Um, <laughs> at this point, Real Madrid come in and they say, look, Gareth Bale is just amazing. Can we ha have him? And Liverpool are like, do you know what? We've got our title back. It's fine. Off you go. They they reinvest the money sensibly. Um, we need to build on our you know joint English record of nineteen league titles. Uh, and yeah, and everyone lives happily ever after. Wow, it's another world. Quite literally. Right. So, what makes it likely that he'd have gone to? I get the the business of him going to Birmingham and doing really mm. well there once yeah. somebody wasn't playing him at left back. Was he a yeah. left back when he came to Spurs originally? Yeah, he mainly played left-back or left-wing-back at Southampton, yeah. Right. Well, they gave them a number three shirt. That was his first mm. shirt at, at Spurs. But the move to Liverpool, what makes you think that he would have gone to Anfield? Well, I think he would have had that really good 2010-11. So he would have been at Birmingham, who, you know, big clubs would have sniffed around him. And, and Liverpool would, were trying to rebuild their team at that point. I mean, it just it seems almost a no-brainer that they would have, rather than go for Stuart Downing, he would have been like a luxury Stuart Downing. And so it turned out. Well, the way things worked out for Birmingham, uh, they ended up instead in that transfer window with sporting Hong midfielder Michel, who went on to make nine appearances. Um, they also managed to get hold of Craig Gardner, who's become a bit of a Birmingham City legend. Um, but Michel went on to be an Azerbaijan Premier League winner with Karabag. Wow. So, Bale, what, what could have been for him? What would it have meant for for Spurs, who wouldn't have, of course, earned all that money that they earned later on with the uh, with his move to Real Madrid? And also, Tom, what would it have done to Wales and their Euro twenty sixteen hopes? Well, it doesn't seem like Wales's Euro twenty sixteen hopes would have would have been altered all that much, um, according to Duncan's alternative timeline. If anything, it seems that Bale is going to hit the headlines even sooner. But uh, yeah, I mean, going back to that, the Euro twenty sixteen qualifiers, Bale was the main man. Right from the opening game, a couple of late goals away to Andorra, the winner at home to Belgium in the game that really you know took Wales to the brink of qualification, and then one of the the star men when they got to France. Um, so yeah, doesn't seem like uh, any any of that would be unduly affected by this uh, alternative imagining of of his career path. All right, and Spurs, anyone? I just wonder whether we ever would have ended up with Harry Kane as a Spurs striker because. Let's not forget Roberto Saldado was one of those players that was bought with the bail money. So his uh, decline, I guess, coincided with the rise of Harry Kane. If he hadn't have been there to make that decline, would Spurs have ever had Harry Kane as a player? It's mind-boggling, isn't it? The more you tug at the thread, the more the whole jumper unravels. Uh, that's uh, enough flip reversing for now. On the way, we've got Pat and Lindsay too. This time it's general knowledge. And before that, we're going looking for a decent football film, but finding instead United Passions. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Football pundits who actually understand management, special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegumbleware.org. Flicks. You have everything you need to run our family. But you know, the slightest error and you're out. Yes, United Passions, a.k.a. FIFA Pitch, a.k.a. for anyone who watched it, the damned United Passions. FIFA's version of their 100-year history starring Gerard Depardieu, Tim Roth and Sam Neill and paid for with 30 million out of their own coffers is by any measure an extraordinary piece of cinema. A film about administration and corporate sponsorship, it serves as a stunning example of why the Swiss are so very famous for making films. As self-serving as a FIFA executive at the buffet, yet another FIFA account that doesn't add up. What did you think of it? Well, first up, I was relieved to learn that it wasn't some kind of Premier League porn film with that title. Wow, really? 
Yes, uh, I have to say, I, I did give it a bit of a Google to start with, and it didn't really fill me with much expectation, seeing that um, on IMDb, I think it had one star. I think the fact it is so bad is what makes it so good. I think you get you get this sense of uplift afterwards. I think that it's over and that you've got through it. So you, you definitely you take something from it, and I do think it's that sense of achievement. I mean, it is an astonishingly bad film, a monumentally bad film. And I knew it was a bad film, but I was surprised by how bad it was. And as Emma says, sometimes people tell you that a film is so bad, it's laughable. This really is laughable. I mean, I spontaneously burst out laughing about five or six times because you cannot believe the sheer brass neck of the filmmakers for attempting to portray uh, these figures from FIFA's history as you know complete heroes. I think one of the original titles for the film was uh, Men of Legend uh, and another one was Dream Makers and that lets you know the level of sustained pomposity uh, that you get from start to finish. I think one reviewer described it as cinematic excrement um, and I don't think I don't think I can improve on that as a description. For me it felt like the first film I've ever seen that's scripted entirely by following successive links on Wikipedia. Do you know when you just start clicking through and it felt like they were like, "Oh, um, oh Stanley Ralphs, who's he? Oh right, we better go and it was um like Tom says, normally when a film is bad it's because they've tried too hard or they've been a bit too ambitious, but this was incredibly un- unambitious. They didn't every time it came to something that was even vaguely dramatic, they would end the scene. So there's various times where Set Blatter will stand up to give a speech or, you know, there'll be some sort of meeting with a, an executive from Adidas or Coca-Cola or someone. And it doesn't show anything. It just moves on to the next scene. It's like it's like they were just, I don't know, they were scared to actually make a film. Richard Clarke says, uh, wow, astonishing movie. I kept expecting Stephen Toast to show up. Arajan Mirsad says, surely United Passions is some sort of money laundering scheme. I don't know what you're talking about, uh, Arajan. <laughs> orchestrated by the people that brought you well FIFA. Every single person seems to be there just to pick up a cheque with a minimal effort. It is extraordinary, the cast they've assembled. Depardieu is, is, is one thing, and, and Sam Neill, a bit disappointing. But I think the one that shocks everyone is, is Tim Roth, uh, who did later apologise. He said, I didn't question the script. It's a role that will have my father turning in his grave. He admitted he took the job for money, saying it helped him out of a financial hole. Yeah, although there was something... I quite liked his portrayal of Blatter. There was something quite charming about it, which is more yeah. you can say for most of the film. It's just... I've never seen a film with so many subtitles as well. Like, they, every scene they had to... Because it moves so fast. It was like... Right. There was one point when one of the one of the subtitles was the Bern Zurich Motorway, 1975. It was like, come on. I mean, you know, you don't need to road. All right, so on? apart from... Tim Roth's furtive blatter, which sounds like a terrible condition. What else did we like about the movie? Uh, Tom, you were mentioning laugh-out-loud moments. What were your weirdest bits? Oh, there are so many. There's one towards the end, and the, the blatter bit is probably the most amusing, uh, unintentionally amusing part of the whole film. Uh, and there's a bit where they're trying to show what a, a dynamic young gunslinger set blatter is. So we get this montage of him travelling the world, making deals... You know, sitting around in hotel bars, um, and then you see him standing over a coffin very briefly, and the camera zooms in on the name on the coffin, uh, and it's uh, Adidas president Horst Dassler. And in the previous scenes, it's been established <laughs> that Blatter and Horst Dassler are quite firm friends, and it's the only real human relationship that Blatter appears to have. You know, they're going to conferences together at one bit, they're standing next to a pitch in Angola, and Dassler is telling Blatter that he's, he's, he's working too hard. Um, so there's obviously a real kind of bond between these two men, but there's no time for Blatter to grieve. So we just see him looming over the coffin and then immediately onto the next shot in the montage. Is that the montage that's actually soundtracked by the bizarre inclusion of wildlife by talking heads? Quite possibly, yes. Right, right. Weird bits, Emma? Ah, uh, it's so hard to narrow this down. Um, I'd have to mention a couple. I think... In terms of when I laughed out loud, it actually came after one of the most dramatic scenes in the film, um, that FIFA marketing seminar, when Blatter makes that quite heartwarming speech, actually, about playing by the rules. The sport is spotless. There is simply a lot more money involved in ours, which is why from now on we will be exemplary in all respects. The slightest breach of ethics will be severely punished. (laughs) But then after that, we cross to what looks like Christmas in the Blatter household. 
Do you remember when Theresa May danced on stage mm. at the Tory party conference? Oh, yeah. It, it was kind of like that on steroids because you've got about 12 of his family members all sort of moving around in a similar way in Blatter's Lounge. And then he's on the phone, but we don't know who to, just staring into he's the He's just distance. doing sponsorship deals. He just can't right. stop doing sponsorship deals. Okay. Well, that, that bit did make me laugh. And then... Um, I don't know. I didn't know to laugh or cry actually at one of the last scenes in the film, which was also quite bizarre. Following Blatter's leadership election win, the girl from the opening sequence, who's been shoved in goal throughout the entirety of mm. the film, um, as we go back to how do you even describe that scene? It's like a when the kids are playing football. Kind of like a motif. So basically, yeah. the film starts with this kind of grubby pitch, which not the first grubby pitch that's been associated with anything. <laughs> But anyway, but so it starts off with this kind of bare pitch with some kids playing around. They all kind of join in together and there's a girl there and as you say, she's stuck in goal. And then we go back to these as a kind of like, as I say, a motif that runs through the film of like, but this is what it's all about. You know, they haven't lost sight of the real hard. Well, bit. yeah, but there's also there's the bit where Blatter at various points keeps pointing out that women's football needs to be helped and its profile raised, ignoring the reality when he actually said they should just wear tighter shorts. Right. Well, this is it. She she's shoved in goal for the entirety of the film, and then suddenly she seems to find her inspiration and inner strength after um, he's won this leadership election. And then she goes and scores a goal at the end. It's bad goalkeeping for me. I mean, what's she doing? Stay in your your box. (laughs) Although, Duncan, you're right. I I was glad to see that she did have some relatively baggy shorts on. Yeah. The one thing that I'm really happy to say that the film doesn't do is ignore racism. In fact, they're really racist all the way through about the poor old Brits, not only portraying them as unrelentingly awful. What did those blasted frogs want? Oh, I'm sorry to say she understands nothing about the game of football. She's under the impression that Negroes could compete with whites at the sport. Oh, really? Yes, we should send her back to her sewing and the art of good housekeeping. Her pretty little head would be filled with less nonsense. Those people will never understand the subtleties of football. My only consolation is knowing that your African friends will betray you in the end and are roundly despised by the rest of the movie's right-thinking characters. Their damned island can sink into oblivion. Spain will never capitulate. Curse the Englishman! That will knock those Brits on their English asses! Rally the other nations. Important ones at that who can't wait to replace those English bastards. It's also amusing how the way that they they show most World Cup finals throughout the film, but when they show the 66 one, it's uh, demonstrated by a kind of load of gawping, swinging 60s idiots watching it through a a shop window, which I'm not sure would have happened, to be honest. But yeah, I mean, the basic underlying plot of the whole film is that English people are evil um, and that Seth Blatter will save football from that eventually, which, you know, in some respects is possibly true. Must admit, it gave me a profound additional respect for Jules Rimet because apparently not only did he invent the World Cup, he also anticipated the American civil rights movement by about 60 years and predicted um, World War Two. You think, yes, they let him launch a World Cup. If only we'd listened to him more, right. we could have avoided all this other bother. Well, also talking of history... Um, there's a scene where they t- someone tells Rime about the Wall Street crash two years after it happened. So he's, you know, he's not keeping up with the news that well for me. Another bit that I really liked was uh, when FIFA really down on their financial uppers and, and Blatter's just started. He meets a Coca-Cola guy in a bar. They just spot him. They're like, well, he won't like football. But before that, they say, his colleagues are saying, have you tried everyone to get sponsorship? And he says, and they say, have you tried the English brewers? Which kind of made me think, imagine if the World Cup had, had ended up being sponsored by like Watney's Party 7. <laughs> it would have been a whole, wholly different kind of vibe around the World Cup. I did like some of the kind of early Chariots of FIFA style kind of period. It, there was a slight feeling in the first half hour, there was a slight feeling that you know, I was going to w- witness history on one Parisian bridge, which they kept walking back a- a- across. I think the budget pretty much went on Depardieu, Roth and... It did Neal. feel like they, they spent so long on the early years that then they had to really rush through the end. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, Italian 90 is covered by a brief shot of Chow at FIFA headquarters, and that's it. Right. So, right. I was also quite tickled by the fact that Sam Neill, as Havilanger, um, pronounced Seth Blatter's name Bladder and only ever referred to him as Bladder. So every time Tim Roth nervously shade. pokes his head into uh, his office, you just get up, Bladder. 
Magnificent. If we're making it sound like actually quite fun, listener, it is. Go and have a watch. You won't regret it. Brilliant. That is United Passions, the third entry in our Flicks and Kicks season. Duncan, last week you caught a controversy by putting Escape to Victory below Green Street uh, on your list of films that you would willingly re-watch. Where does United Passions hit? Uh, this goes firmly into third place, um, as I it stands. All right. Well, next week we'll have another film for you. What are we going to dust off this time around? Is it going to be Goal or the Robert Duvall classic, A Shot at Glory? I would say A Shot of Glory would be... Shot of Glory it is. Mm. We'll post a link, hopefully, for that. But, listener, if you fancy watching that, Ali McCoist, compared to Olivier, uh, thanks for his performance, I'm not kidding, uh, do uh, make sure you send us in your thoughts afterwards because it's always entertaining to get your perspective. That, for now, though, is it for our film section because up next it's time to conclude today's Totally Football show with the quiz round two, Lindsay V. Pat, The Decider. All right now, time to welcome back Lindsay and Pat for the climax of today's show as we discover which of these two is going through to the quarterfinals. Lindsay, you're two points behind Pat. How confident are you? Not very. (laughs) I see. Pat, you're two points ahead of Lindsay. How confident are you? I have no confidence whatsoever. I am hopeless at quizzes. Really? Well, round one was a perfect score. What will you do in the general knowledge? We'll find that out very shortly. But Lindsay, you're up first with the general knowledge questions, which start thus... Three teams have featured in only one Premier League season. Can you name two of them? One Premier League season. Mm, Huddersfield? No. Um, I'm going to go with... Going to have to hurry you, Lindsay. Um, Derby? No, I'm afraid that's two wrong answers. I think we have to I think we have to move on and just reveal that it's Blackpool, Barnsley and Swindon Town, the three clubs that have only featured in one Premier League season. Question two. In reference to the Champions League or European Cup, what do Nottingham Forest and Porto have in common? They both won the league and the European Cup in that respective year. Incorrect. They're the only teams that have been in two finals but have won them both. Question three. Which keeper has the most clean sheets in Premier League history? Petr Cech. That is correct. Now just one point behind Pat Nevin. Question four. Three players have been sent off for England at World Cups. Name two of them. Wayne Rooney and David Beckham. Correct. Level now with Pat Nevin and this to take the lead. Question five. Who said the following about Sven Juran Eriksson? We needed Churchill, but we got Ian Duncan Smith. (laughs) <laughs> I remember this, but I can't remember who said it. Oh, I can't remember. I'm just going to say Rio Ferdinand. Unfortunately, it was Gareth Southgate. Lindsay, that means that the scores are absolutely level as we enter Pat's general knowledge questions. Pat, you need just one correct answer to take that much sought-after place in the quarterfinals. All right, then, your first question. By which unusual method... Was the 1968 European Championship semi-final between Italy and Russia decided? Oh, no, it's going to be either a tossing of a coin or drawing of lots. Um, How will you decide between the two? Oh, I'm going to go toss of coin. <laughs> and you're correct. And Pat, you're in the quarterfinals. <laughs> the other questions, just to see whether you can maintain your perfect score. Question two. How many points did Derby get in their historically bad 2007-2008 season? Uh, I'm going 17. It was 11. Question number three. With Man United's treble winning players splitting the vote, who actually ended up winning the 1999 PFA Player of the Year award? Oh, God. Stevie Gerrard. Nope. David Ginola. Question four. Which two players jointly hold the record for most goals scored in the Scottish national team? Uh, Mr. Kenneth Douglas. Sir, Sir Kenneth Douglas. And uh, the lawman, Dennis Law. Correct. Who said the following question five? When the Italians tell me it's pasta, I still check under the sauce to make sure. <laughs> That's a great line. Um, um, Ramsey? Sir Alex Ferguson. Ooh. Which gives you a grand total of seven points out of ten and enough to see you through to the quarterfinal. Commiserations, Lindsay. That's okay. Well done, Pat. Mm. I'm absolutely stunned and I don't deserve it. Sterling performance. It's the first time I've ever 
done well in a quiz in my entire life. It's not going to last. <laughs> right. Maybe, Pat, maybe you're the Leicester of this crazy competition. <sighs> possibly so. Possibly <laughs> I, so. Just, you know, it's possible. Possible. Anyway, listen, great to have you on board. Stay well and look forward to catching up with you soon here on the show. Thanks for having us. Bye. Well, listener, Pat Nevin through and Duncan, that seems to have only increased your pain. Well, I got nine out of ten on the on the general knowledge, which you know it's too late now, too little, too late. Um, I've, I've got nothing more to add. Right, Emma and Tom, you've still got a part to play in this competition. How you know? How are your prospects based on how you fared on the general knowledge there? Um, I got nine out of ten. Um, the only thing I didn't get was uh, Dennis Law being the co-holder of the Scottish uh, right. national team scoring record. So yeah, feeling quite confident. Be afraid, James Horncastle. Be very afraid. Emma. I think if, if I get around like Lindsay's, I think I might be okay. But um, I have to say I'm becoming more and more scared of this encounter with Jack Lang. Not the first time we've heard those words, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Tom, you're up next on Sunday evening stroke Monday morning against the Horn Dog. That is must-listen-to podcasting, uh, as I'm sure I don't need to explain to you, a listener. But that pretty much brings us to the end of today's show uh, do make sure you join us uh, for monday's edition there'll be retro thoughts in there and all sorts of other delights as well uh, for now though it's many thanks to duncan emma and tom for being with us today and watching united passions and all that kind of thing many well, thanks, thanks for having us. it was an experience yeah two hours of my life i'll never get back the film that is not not the podcast <laughs> <laughs> righty, have a great weekend listener And I tell you what, if you stick around to after this music finishes, we'll have a little extra treat for you. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna sing you my song very quickly. It's All right, like, brilliant, it's, Tom. It's, it's it's only a minute. Tom, okay. you, I've never seen someone you so ready? keen to sing. Okay. <clears throat> Do you guys know Hugh Pym? Are you familiar with him? Can you no, who's like, Hugh picture Pym? him in your head? He's the BBC News's um, health editor. Okay. So it hasn't been used very much recently, then. Yeah. Your hair is brown, your shirt is white. You bring news of the virus fight. I eat my lunch with you every day, Hugh Pym. You've got the charts and stats and graphs. You know this can't be played for laughs. You're the steely face of national gloom. Hugh Pym. Hugh Pym. Hugh Pym. Hugh Pym. Hugh Pym. You're a shining light of hope in quarantine. Hmm. Hugh Pym. Hugh Pym. Hugh Pym. Hugh Pym. So if isolation ain't so bad when you're on screen. Hmm. Hmm. Sorry, who's Hugh Pym? <laughs>